Happy Resurrection Sunday to you all. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in Mark 15 and 16. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, what a great day, the culmination of the Christian calendar, a day that is above every day because we have a Savior who is above all saviors. We thank you for Resurrection Day and the joy that is ours to celebrate the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that as we look at your scriptures, that we would be encouraged by them, that we would be uplifted, and that if we do not have a relationship with your son Jesus, that today might be a day when we believe and receive your son as personal savior. Guide our time, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. It was the early 1920s in communist Europe. Nikolai Bukharin was sent from Moscow to Kiev. He was sent with the purpose of giving an anti-God propaganda lecture. It was his goal to have this audience that had been conscripted, an audience of troublemakers, an audience of individuals who were not bowing to the communist regime, they were forced to be there. They were forced to listen. They were forced to hear an hour to an hour and a half of anti-God propaganda. And after Nikolai Bukharin was done, and he felt that he had stripped even the last vestiges of faith from these troublemakers, there was a time for question and answer. And in the front, there was a rotund, Orthodox priest, he stood up, he put his back to Nikolai Bukharin, and he said to the audience, he is risen, and as a person they arose, and they responded, he is risen indeed. There was no destroying their faith. They had felt the power of the resurrection of Christ in their lives. And it would take a lot more than an hour and a half of anti-propaganda against God to destroy their faith. No need to rise, but let's go ahead and try it. I know Jared already stole my thunder. He's a one-trick pony. <laughs> but he is risen. He is risen indeed. And indeed he has. And his resurrection brings great freedom. As I think about freedom, I think of Rabbi Herschel Schachter. There are two such individuals in the 20th century. I'm referring to the former who died at age 95 in the Bronx. Rabbi Herschel was an individual who brought freedom. It was 72 years ago. It happened to be April 11, 1945. He was with the Third Army. He was with General Patton. They rolled into Buchwald, the Nazi concentration camp. The crematoriums had recently stopped 
The thickness, the putridness was still in the air. They walked into the barracks. You've seen the grainy film before. They saw the prisoners' shells of men stacked from floor to ceiling on various cots up upon one another. And they offered freedom. They said, come, you are now free. But the rabbi, he was in a military uniform, and those who were imprisoned felt like perhaps they were just having one occupier be replaced by another occupier. And so nobody would move. Why move when you are not free? Why obey when you're already a prisoner? Why move forth from one oppressor to the next? And finally, the rabbi said, Shalom, alakam, yidin ir zitzri. He made the statement, peace be to you, Jews. You are now free. And hearing it in their own language, the men began to move. There was a trickle and then a flood as they poured out of the barracks, as they ran from barracks to barracks, declaring freedom for all who were there. And Rabbi Herschel Schachter is certainly a hero. He's a man that has done great things. In fact, he stayed in Buchenwald for a number of months. He turned the cafeteria into a religious center. He nursed men back to health. He helped reunify men with living relatives across Europe. He gave men their temporal freedom, and freedom is important. Men like the rabbi are heroes, no doubt about that. And I don't want to take anything from that, but he offered temporal freedom. But another Jew, a God-man, Jesus Christ, offers eternal freedom. He conquered death. He was brutalized and then went to the cross. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God. And how does that verse begin? For our sake. He did it for us, not to offer just temporal freedom, as important as that is. He did it to offer eternal freedom. For those like us who cannot set ourselves free, he offered freedom through faith and acceptance of Jesus Christ. I'd like to pick up in the text, and I want to read to us from Mark chapter 15. I'll read verses 16 to 27, and then 31 to 34. Mark 15, starting in verse 16. And the soldiers led him, that is Jesus, away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and nailing down an homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on them, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, 
who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha. In Aramaic, it means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, that is about noon, and they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two insurrectionists, one in his right and one on his left. Verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another. They said he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let a Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land and then the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As you and I begin in verse 16 of the 15th chapter, we see that Jesus is led to the praetorium. He's led to the palace of a governor, a weak-kneed man named Pontius Pilate. We see that there is a number of soldiers there. The text tells us a battalion. It's a Greek word, actually, that could mean up to 600 individuals are present. 600 soldiers, but that's not likely. It's likely it means about 200. And we need to understand that the Pontius Pilate would not have had Italian legionnaires. They wouldn't have been available to him. They would have been at the various fronts of the Roman Empire. He would have had auxiliary soldiers, non-Italians. In fact, we're told by history, he would have had those from Caesarea. And even more important, he would have had Samaritans. Samaritan Roman soldiers were part of the auxiliary unit that were used to protect Pilate. Now, I want us to think about this for a moment. These aren't Italians. These aren't disimpassioned individuals who might have the attitude, if you've seen one Jew, you've seen them all. It doesn't really matter. This Jew or that Jew, who cares? Just another occupied nation, just another occupied populace. It doesn't really matter who they are. These are auxiliary soldiers. They're Samaritans. Who do Jews hate? Samaritans. Who do Samaritans hate? Jews. We have 400 years of bigotry, 400 years of prejudice. It's the Jews that destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim, the Samaritan temple. And now they have a Jew in their captivity. There's probably 200 of them. They have idle time. And they pour out with hatred, the bigotry and prejudice and anger 
of 400 years of hatred towards the Jews, and the recipient is Jesus. But prior to this moment, Jesus will be flogged. I picked up too late in the text to read about the flogging, but know this, Jesus was flogged. Understand what a flogging is. A flogging is Jesus being stripped, his hands tied to a post in the ground, bent over so there's no escaping. The Roman whip is leather embedded with shards of pottery, glass, and metal. Probably two soldiers, one on either side, would bring down the lash, taking turns. Jewish law limited flogging to 39 lashes. But the Jews aren't in control. Jewish law is irrelevant. Rome is in control. And Rome is limited by nothing but their whim and their strength, and they beat Jesus. Then they reenact an enthronement ceremony. Figure that Jesus is rather bludgeoned at this point, and they take a crimson robe and they press it upon Jesus. And they take a crown of thorns and they drive it into his skull and they baptize him with spittle and they beat him with rods and reeds and they mock him. It's a terrible situation. And then they take him down the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross. If you've been to Israel, it's very much the same. In fact, we know from the Lithostratus, the stone pavement, that the road in which Jesus walked is only 10 feet underneath. We have some of that road still extant today. And so we know that what it looks like today is what it looked like 2,000 years ago. It's cobblestone. You have stores on both sides. The crowds are thick. There's some of the women. They're crying out for Jesus. They're the faithful. They can't believe that this is happening to Jesus. And they're following and they're crying and they're praying. Then there's other shoppers disinterested. They've seen one too many crucifixions. They've seen one too many Jew being brutalized. And so they continue their shopping, even as Jesus is led through the streets. Then there's the Sanhedrin. They're the ruling Jewish Senate. They're there to make sure that their whims are followed. Then there's the soldiers. Their eyes dart right and left. Understand that they're very uncomfortable at this moment. They want to move this through the streets. They want to move this through the crowds. They know that there are insurrectionists, freedom fighters, guerrilla warfare specialists, individuals who want to murder anyone with a Roman uniform. And Jesus is not moving too rapidly. There's a great loss of blood. He's carrying the patabolum. We often see in the movies or the pictures him carrying the cross, probably not. The upright beam, that would have been left in the place of the skull. There have been crucifixions before. There will be crucifixions after. In a 30-year period, at least 40,000 Jews were crucified. 
perhaps several hundred thousand, but we know of a certain number. He carries the patabolum. It's a hundred pounds. He's a strong man. He's a tecton. He's a stone carpenter. A hundred pounds is nothing, but he's been beaten. He's been flogged. His body is in shock. There's a great loss of blood. He's moving too slowly. Perhaps he falls. The gospels don't tell us. But the soldiers need to move this on. They need to get out of the crowds. They need to get away from the throngs. It's dangerous for them. So they conscript Simon of Cyrene. He will carry the pot of Balaam. And they make their way through the Rindy Street to Golgotha, the place of the skull. The pot of Balaam is laid on the ground and Jesus' body is laid across that coarse beam. The hollow sound of a mallet rings out in the air. And several spikes, one on each wrist, four to six inches tapered, are driven into him. Two soldiers then drag him backwards over to the upright beam and they hoist him, pulling at his muscles. And they attach the patabolum to the upright beam. It's a horrible picture. And we have the fulfillment of 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, for our sake, he who knew no sin became sin for us that through him we might become the righteousness of God. It's not just the brutality. It's not this, the flagellum, the wep. It's not just the empty hollow mallet driving in spikes. It's the sin of humanity placed upon him. Jesus becomes our Paschal, our Easter lamb. So we read in John 1:29, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you can feel the loneliness in the air. Jesus, who has been in perfect fellowship for all of eternity past, who will be in perfect fellowship for all of eternity future, suddenly is alone and he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's forsaken him because the wages of sin is death. Someone needs to die for our sin and he who knew no sin became sin for us. And the perfect fellowship between father and son is broken because he's covered with our sin. But fear not. At the end of the agony of the cross is the resurrection. And he is risen. And he is risen indeed. Ah, but I've moved too fast. First in verses 24 to 33, we get a glimpse of the crucifixion. Indeed, by the sixth hour, noon, darkness covers the land. I picture a centurion in my mind. He laughs at death. He's seen it so many times before. But he hasn't seen this. He hasn't seen darkness. Darkness that will cover the land for three hours. 
And then the earth shakes. And tombs break open. And the veil in the temple, maybe six inches thick, that separates the holy place from the common places. It's torn. Just prior to the darkness, we have the soldiers. There's a Roman saying, to the victors comes the spoils of war. To those who engage in crucifixion, they get the property of the crucified. It isn't much. It's bragging rights more than anything else. Jesus had a seamless undergarment. That's worth a few shekels. A belt, an overcoat, well-worn sandals. That's about it. They gamble the entire thing away. But it's not just his property. It's those on his right and those on his left. Some translations read that these guys are common thieves, don't believe it. The word is lestis or plural lestai. They're freedom fighters. They're insurrectionists. They're guerrilla warfare specialists. They're the very people who are zealots who look for Romans and seek to assassinate them. But these guys were caught. Whether they committed murder or only attempted, I don't know. But the penalty is the same death. And they're also railing against Jesus. And above Jesus is a, is a wooden sign. And it's written, the King of the Jews. Oh, it's true enough. But it's there as a mockery. It's there to make light of Jesus. And then again, there's that darkness. Darkness from noon until three. Don't be fooled by the darkness. We don't have a solar eclipse that lasts but a few moments. This is three hours. It's not a Sirocco. They occur in this part of the world. Sandstorms that can blot out the sun bring darkness for hours, sometimes days. But they occur during the dry season. We're at Passover. It's the rainy season. This darkness is judgment. This is the darkness we see in Isaiah 13. This is the darkness we see in Jeremiah 15. This is the darkness we see in Exodus 7 to 12 that is thrust on Egypt when Moses says, God says, let my people go, and Pharaoh disobeys. This darkness is judgment. But I want us to notice on whom the judgment falls. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The judgment falls on Christ. We'd expect the judgment to fall on the Romans. We'd expect the judgment to fall on the Jews. We'd expect the judgment to fall on sinners, which would be every one of us. But the judgment falls on Christ. Christ pays the penalty. 
But in a moment, we'll learn that not only does the judgment fall on Christ, but also the resurrection. For he is risen, and he is risen indeed. Why did the judgment fall on Christ? Because the wages of sin is death. Someone needs to pay the penalty of our sin. And Jesus, fully God, perfect in every way, fully man, able to, weak, able to sympathize with our weakness, willingly followed the will of the Father. And he went to the cross on our behalf for our sake. He who knew no sin became sin for us that through him we might become the righteousness of God. That's why Jesus went to the cross. But he didn't remain there. I think again of the opening illustration. And here we have a communist man offering anti-God propaganda, trying to destroy the faith of the faithful. But their lives have been changed. There was a testimony in every one of them. And even under communist rule, they had a future, they had a hope, they had a love. And so when the priest stands and says, he is risen, they respond, he is risen indeed. Let's read about the resurrection. Mark 16, verses 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying one to another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. Luke tells us in the 24th chapter that he gleamed like lightning. This is an angel. And they were alarmed. I bet they were. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Think of this beautiful act. We have several women, including Mary and Mary and Salome. They go to the tomb early Sunday morning. Jesus has been in there parts of three days. He's been in there probably 40 hours. Think of the Middle Eastern heat. Think of the Middle Eastern sun. Think of the decay. Think of the ripeness. And they go to embalm. And when they get there, the stone has been rolled back. The governor's seal has been broken. The soldiers lie as dead men, and they see a man gleaming who is clearly angelic, and he essentially says, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is risen, and he is risen indeed. What did the resurrection of Christ bring? 
It brought forgiveness for all who would receive Jesus as the Paschal Lamb. It brought the end of the sacrificial system where sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice needed to be made. And we had barely offered a sacrifice and we're on the way home and we have a wrong action or a wrong thought and we've got to turn around and offer yet another sacrifice because we're constantly sinning. And Jesus became the final sacrifice. He became the Paschal Lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the King. The King who is worthy of our allegiance, worthy of our obedience, worthy to be followed. He left this earth and he tells us in John 14 that I go to prepare a place for you. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again that where I am, you may be also. He goes to create heaven for us, a place of eternity for all who believe and receive Christ as Savior. So what is our response to the resurrection of Christ? What is our response to the reality, the historical fact that the grave is empty and he is risen and he is risen indeed? It ought to be one of gratitude and thanks and belief and receiving. Paul writes in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, declared righteous. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Our response needs to be belief in Jesus Christ, him dying as a payment of our sin, him rising as the first fruits of resurrection giving us a hope and a confidence that to be absent from the body as a believer is to be present with the Lord. And thus Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so our number one response needs to be belief. And if you're here today and you've not believed in Christ, we are so thankful you're here. And I hope, I pray, that today would be a day in which you would believe in Jesus and receive him as Savior. And for those of us who already know Christ, this is a day of rejoicing. This is a day of celebration. This is the culmination of the Christian calendar. This is the number one day. We celebrate the empty tomb. We celebrate the resurrected Christ. We celebrate a future and a hope in heaven. And we have the privilege to share that with others because he is risen and he is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this great day in which we celebrate the resurrection of our King, our Savior, your Son. We love you. We love your son, we love your spirit. We desire to honor you. And Father, if there's some here today that perhaps want to believe, we pray that by faith they would believe in Jesus, your son, 
And as we all must, we pray that by faith they would confess sin, wrong attitudes, actions, thoughts, motives, inactivities. We're also guilty. And we would accept your death as a payment of our sin and your resurrection as the first fruits of life after death, life eternal in heaven. And Father, for we who already know Jesus, fill us with joy, expectancy, obedience, and a desire to share the great news of salvation through your Son, Jesus, alone, to share it with others. Father, we rejoice that he is risen. He is risen indeed. In the name of our risen Savior, we pray. Amen.